0: Good morning, Waterstone. I am WC, and welcome to Is That in the Bible? We're starting a series on Proverbs, and you may know that just about every culture throughout history has had their own Proverbs, sayings, axioms, if you will. The question is, can you, the good people of Waterstone, tell the difference between the Word of God and what some guy down the street came up with? So we're going to put a proverb up on the screen, and then we're going to have you tell me whether or not that proverb is in the Bible. And last night and earlier this morning, it worked out well to do the thumbs-up, thumbs-down method, just like in Roman times. You with me? All right. Number one. Slowness to anger makes for deep understanding. A quick-tempered person stockpiles stupidity. Ladies and gentlemen, what do you think? Is that in the Bible? I've got some thumbs down. Lots of thumbs down, I've got a couple thumbs up. Let's see, is that in the Bible? Yes, it is. By the way, we retain the right to use the message version because that way we get to make it confusing and have a lot of fun. Next up, boasting begins where wisdom stops. Boasting begins where wisdom stops. What do you think, Waterstone? Lots of thumbs up. They think it's in the Bible, most of this section here. Got some thumbs up over there. Let's see. Is that in the Bible? No, so sorry. A Japanese proverb. By the way, just as an incentive, if you get all of the answers right, you win the best prize of all, a sense of self-satisfaction. I don't know what that's like, but I hear it's great. So, next up, adversity is the mother of wisdom. Adversity is the mother of wisdom. What do we think? What do we think? I've got a thumbs up. I've got some thumbs down. Oh, the crowd is very divided. Is that in the Bible? Oh, good engineering, good proverbs. Not actually from Scripture. Next up. Listening to gossip is like eating cheap candy. Do you really want junk like that in your belly? Is it from the Bible? Is it the latest tweet from Kid Kardashian? What do we think? I've got a thumbs down up front. I've got a lot of people who are refusing to commit. Either way, come on, give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down. You know you want to. I got some thumbs up here from the front. Is that in the Bible? Congratulations, those who thought it was, you were correct. Next up, a good deed dies when it is spoken about. Hmm. A good deed dies when it is spoken about. I see up. I see a lot of up. I see some down. It seems biblical. Is that in the Bible? No, apparently it is not. Oh, this is getting difficult. No one told me there would be a quiz. Next up, kind words heal and help. Cutting cutting words, wound and maim. I can speak from experience. It's accurate. But is it in the Bible? I see some thumbs up. I see more thumbs up. I see at least one thumb down from a Stephen minister who should know one way or another. So, is he correct? Is it in the Bible? Oh, congratulations if you got that one correct. If you got it wrong, Jesus still loves you. Next. It is better to be poor and direct than rich and crooked. I've been poor, I've been rich, rich is better. No, it is better to be poor and direct than rich and crooked. I've got a down and an up. I've got some down, I've got some up. Again, a lot of people refusing to commit. Is that in the Bible? Yes, it is. We seem to be separating the wheat from the chaff at this point. (laughs) Next up. Be sure to taste your words before you spit them out, which is very good advice. But is it in the Bible? I've got some up. I've got some very vehement down. I've got some sideways, you don't understand what we're doing at all. Is that in the Bible? Oh, be sure to taste your words before you spit them out then. No, it was not. Next up. Smooth seas do not make skillful sailors. Good fortune cookie, but is it in the Bible? Lots of down, lots of down. Either you don't think it's in the Bible or you want me to feed Pastor Larry to the lions. We're going to assume the former. There's less paperwork. Is that in the Bible? Congratulations, all the downs. You were correct. Next up. If you let people treat you like a doormat, you'll be quite forgotten in the end. I see immediate down. Some downs, lots of downs. Again, the Stephen minister saying down. Let's hope he's correct this time. Is that in the Bible? Yes, it is. Oh, dear. He's a good listener, though, folks. Trust me. He's very good at what he does. Just doesn't read a lot. Anyway. You don't know who I'm talking about. Maybe I'm making it up. Moving on. When the winds of change blow, some people build walls and others build windmills. Is that in the Bible? Lots of down. Lots of down. Are they correct? Is it in the Bible? No. China is a proverb. Next up. Curses on those who drive a hard bargain, blessings on those who play fair and square. Well, if it's not in the Bible, it should be. What do you think? I see down, I see up, I see down and up. Make a a choice. You can't just do both. Is that in the Bible? Yes, it is. If you said it was, you were correct, and you should feel good about yourself. Next up, gossips can't keep secrets, so never confide in blabbermouths. Again, from personal experience, this is a very true statement. But is it in the Bible? I've got downs. We don't think that it is. I've got at least one up. Is that person correct? Is it in the Bible? They gave you the message again. Oh, so tricky, the pastoral staff. Next up. I like this one very much. The only time to look down on someone is when you're bending over to help. That's worth writing down, again, wherever it comes from. But where do we think? Is that in the Bible? Ups and downs, ups and downs. Is that in the Bible? No, it comes from Pennsylvania. (laughs) We are down to our last three. If you're keeping track out there in the audience, you have my pity. But moving on, better to be ordinary and work for a living, like, say, Pastor Larry, than act important and starve in the process. Is that in the Bible? Ups, ups and downs, ups and downs, more ups and downs. Is that in the Bible? Yes, it certainly is. Yet another proverb. This next one is one of my favorites. Neither a borrower nor a lender be. Now, is that scriptural? It could be. It seems like it might be. I've got ups, I've got downs. Is that in the Bible? No, it's actually from Macbeth. The Bible, uh, if you care, says lend expecting nothing in return. That's from Luke. This was Shakespeare. And our very last quote of the day. The Lord helps those who helps themselves. Immediate downs. I see many immediate downs. Any thumbs up? Anyone think that's from the Bible? Is that indeed from the Bible? No, it is not, and congratulations. You did better on that one than first service. <laughs> so that concludes our game show, and hopefully you've had fun. In all seriousness, if you got some or most or all of those wrong, uh, the Waterstone Pastoral Staff would encourage you to participate in our Steal a Bible program. The Bibles in the uh, pew backs in front of you are yours for the taking. We encourage you to start with Proverbs. <laughs> but in the meantime, it is my distinct pleasure to introduce your morning speaker. This lady puts the... I had a joke, and I did it in the first service and last night, and it just went out of my head, so we'll move on to the second one. She puts the homie in homilytics. Please welcome Pastor Danielle Reed.
1: Oh. <laughs> Will should introduce us every week. <laughs> uh, how'd you do on that Proverbs thing? Oh, impressive. I missed the same one multiple times and I saw the answers. <laughs> it was a little embarrassing. It was the Shakespeare one. I got it right this time, though. Hey, thanks for doing that with us. We are excited to kick off Proverbs. Let me pray for us and we'll continue on in our service. God, thank you for today. Thanks for your use of humor, God. It just brings us together as a community. Thank you for um, an incredible worship service where you bring us together to honor and glorify you. And God, I pray as we go into the sermon portion that you would give us ears to hear, God. Help us to really um, indwell in your understanding of Scripture. And God, I just pray that you would reveal yourself to us. In your name we pray, amen. There's a deadly epidemic facing our nation, and it's causing great concern for health officials. It impacts people of all ages, races, and economic levels. No one is immune to it. It increases our risk of cardiovascular disease, impairs our immune system's ability to fight infection, and doubles our risk of premature death. In fact, the mortality rate of this condition is twice as dangerous as obesity and is comparable to that of smoking. To make matters worse, there isn't a medical cure for this condition. While some people try to self-medicate by turning to drugs, alcohol, sex, shopping, and technology, they quickly realize the futility of their efforts. This condition significantly shortens our lifespan, but can't be cured with a prescription. Do you know what it is? Loneliness. A report done by the National Science Foundation Um, where they interviewed 1,500 people across the United States. It didn't matter what their socioeconomic level was, so it was a random sampling. They did face-to-face interviews. They found that 25% of people have absolutely no one to talk to, zero. If you count family members in that that they reported, that jumps up to 50%. 50% of people have no friends that they engage with. That statistic is so bothersome that health officials and politicians and the media are trying to figure out what to do with it. That's why it's seen as an epidemic. And what that tells us is if that's the national average, that means that 50% of us sitting in this room right now are experiencing extreme loneliness. The one thing that scientists agree on that help fill some of that gap is friendship. Today we're kicking off a 10-week series on Proverbs where we're going to talk about a variety of topics such as anger, friendships, today, relationships, family relationships, uh, creation care, all sorts of things. And our hope is that you'll be able to take some of the ancient wisdom that's found in Proverbs and see that it still continues to apply to our lives today. So we're going to kick off with friendship Um, As I said, it's one place for us to recognize that it helps fill some of the gap in loneliness. And so I want to talk about three things today. I want to talk about why we need friends. I want to talk about the characteristics of a good friend. And then I want to leave that portion because that's kind of head knowledge. That's information. And I want to come back to this idea of loneliness and what we do with loneliness. That's the heart piece. So let's start with looking at why do we need relationships? Why friendships? friendships are actually something that were, that were created at the very beginning. God created us to be in relationship. It's part of his image. Part of his, him as an image bearer is that he created us to be in relationship with him and relationship with one another. We see that in the creation account when he made Adam and recognized right away that Adam was lonely, so he made Eve. So God, in his community self of father son and holy spirit replicated that community in us as people and he created us for one another one of the things that happened in the garden when adam and eve were there is that they decided to break that community aspect and to instead engage in their own individualistic pursuits and in that moment what we know is that all creation fell and brokenness happened in our relationship between us and god and us and one another That brokenness is not so different than today. We still strive towards our own individualistic desires. There is a sociologist out of Penn State named Vicki Abt who talks a little bit about this. She says, the journalistic issue of the day may well be the dangers of and reasons for loneliness. As Philip Slater said in his book, The Pursuit of Loneliness, American cultural institutions are structured to make relations among people difficult at best. We hold as self-evident the need for space, for privacy, for individualism, for the right to compete. No wonder we are wary of one another. We are lonely because we have cut ourselves off from traditional values, from history, and from the future. You know, wisdom actually addresses this issue of individuality versus community. This idea of loneliness versus the space we find in community. And I want to start, before we go to Proverbs, by talking a little bit about Ecclesiastes. Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, just like he wrote um, most of Proverbs. And what I want you to know about Solomon is that before he um, wrote Ecclesiastes, one of the things that happened with him is he was a man after God's own heart. He was engaged in a communal relationship with God and then something changed in him and he decided that he knew better and that giving it a shot on his own was the way to go. So he really made this individualistic effort. He began to toil endlessly. He was working and working and working. He was trying to gain wealth. And Ecclesiastes, and then we'll see here in the passage in Ecclesiastes 4, this is really Solomon's reflection. It's almost like we're getting a glimpse into his journal entry as he reflects upon what life was like when he was living that individualistic lifestyle. Here's what it says, Ecclesiastes 4, 4, and then we'll jump to 7 and 8. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. You know, what Solomon recognized as he was reflecting backwards on his life was that when he was toiling, when he was working, 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 that that made him void of relationships. He lost that relational connection because he was so invested in pursuing the next thing. Can you relate to that? We do that. We do that all the time. We do that because we get invested in our, in our lives. We get invested in our work, and we're so, so... Um, Content in, or we think we're content in trying to pursue those things that we leave out our relationship with God and with others. That was Solomon. He was so invested in finding this wealth that he was pursuing after his things that were toil. But what he found was that they were very meaningless. In fact, he calls this the life of the foolish person. This he contrasts with the life of a wise person, which we'll see jumping forward to Ecclesiastes 4 9 through 12. Solomon says this two are better than one. Now, I want to pause because we hear this where oftentimes? At a wedding. This is not about male-female relationship as a couple that's getting married. This This refers to friendships. This refers to community. So please don't exempt yourself if you're single or if you're divorced. This is really talking about friends, okay? Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So let's look at this wisdom. We went from Solomon saying, gosh, doing this individualistic life is very lonely, it's meaningless, and then we jump to fulfillment in relationship. And he says this, two are better than one. They have a good return on their labor. They can help each other up. They can keep each other warm. Um, Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And then he lands on this last line, which is kind of the kicker. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. You know, we know this image. It's the one strand versus the three strands, right? If you have one string and you hold something heavy from it, it can only withstand so much weight. All of the weight is bearing on that one piece of string. But when you take a string and you fold it into three, you intertwine it, It strengthens it. And the reason it does that is because instead of all of the weight bearing on one string, it has to be equally distributed among the three. Solomon's wisdom is saying a life alone is going to break. The ups and downs of life, the pains that we all have and experience, we alone can't withstand those. But when we live in community, when we have friendships and our friendships hold us together, we can withstand a lot more. That's the image Solomon is trying to give us. So the reason that we have friendships, the reason that they're so valuable is A, because we were created to be in relationship with one another and B, because as image bearers, part of our responsibility is to reflect God's image onto other people and the way that we do that is by being good friends. That actually takes us to our next point. So we talked about how do we become friends. The second is what are the characteristics of a good friend? Now, I don't know about you, but when I first started thinking about this whole topic of friendship, my mind automatically went to this place of, what is it like for you to be a good friend to me? Because it's all about me, right? It's the individualistic society. Here's what's interesting. When we look at these Proverbs from Solomon, this is all about what I need to do to be a good friend to others. What you need to do to be a good friend to others. So while these are characteristics of what we may find in a good friend, I want you to put that aside for a minute and recognize that this is what we need to do for other people to reflect God's image onto them, okay? So there's four characteristics we're gonna look at. Constancy, carefulness, candor, and counsel. Let's start with this idea of constancy. Constancy is really a loyalty. It's showing up for someone again and again. Here are proverbs that talk about constancy. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Do not forsake your friend or a friend of your family, and do not go to your relative's house when disaster strikes you. Better a neighbor than a relative far away. You know, One of the things I want to point out is that in all three of these proverbs, there's this comparison between a family member and a friend. The reason behind that is because when we're in relationship with our family members, there's this expectation that they're going to love us and care about us and show up. It's, It's almost like this unspoken requirement. When a friend does that for us or when we as a friend do that for others, that speaks volumes because it's a choice. And not only is it a choice, but it's a long haul. This is not a choice we make in a moment of time. We are such a community and a culture of instant gratification that we expect immediate results, right? I was even thinking about this the other day. I was working on a computer and it took 10 seconds instead of five seconds to go to the page and I was irritated. Like we're conditioned that way, right? We want to get in, we want to get healthy, we want to get in shape, we want to lose weight and if we haven't, so we start to exercise and eat, right? And what happens if we don't see results in a week? We're like, oh, well, forget that. We want to learn a new instrument, so we maybe go to lessons for a month, and we can't play this piece that we were hoping to play, and so we're like, oh, well, it's just not worth it. We do that same thing with friendships. We engage with one another, we give it a shot, we'll try it for a week or a month, maybe even a year, and if it's not working out or it doesn't seem like it's fulfilling our needs, we throw our hands up. This idea of constancy is the marathon instead of the sprint. It's an image of an apple tree. And the reason the apple tree represents this constancy is because you have to take the time to plant the seed, and then you have to water it. And then how long does it take before a seed grows into something that produces this much fruit? Like a lot of years. That's what we are to do as friends. We're to show up for one another, not once, not twice, but again and again and again and again. That's revealing the image of God unto others. The most brilliant and life-giving place that I have seen this at work firsthand is in our Emmaus class here at Waterstone. There are individuals in that class that have been friends for 30-plus years. They take each other to doctor's appointments. They've helped bury each other's spouses. They show up and pray for each other. They do things for that group of individuals for each other as friends that oftentimes family members don't even do for one another. That's the image of constancy. That's the first characteristic of a good friend. Second characteristic of a good friend is carefulness. This one's interesting to me. Let's read the passages and I'll tell you why. These are kind of funny. Seldom set your foot, seldom set foot in your neighbor's house. Too much of you and they will hate you. If anyone loudly blesses their neighbor early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day or like vinegar poured on a wound is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. Like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death is one who deceives their neighbor and says, I was only joking. You know, we laugh at these, but what does that mean? What does that mean that that, you know we as friends are like a maniac shooting flaming arrows of death Onto our neighbor and then reply, just, just kidding. What these passages are talking about are an emotional disconnect within ourselves. If we're able to joke with somebody when they're having a hard time, or set foot in their neighbor's house when they think it's too much, we're lacking a self-awareness and a concern for them. You know, it's like, you come to me, you've just had a family member die, and my response to you is to tell you a joke. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be a friend in that moment. Carefulness is about being aware of our own selves so that we can reflect, again, God's image onto others. We need to meet people in their sadness or in their joy. We need to reflect back to them that emotion that they're feeling. You know, parents do this without even thinking about it. There's the, the saying that a parent is only as happy as their unhappiest child. My husband David and I have four kids, so we're never happy. <laughs> they rotate <laughs> who's struggling with something. Um, but there's something about that. It's, it's not that we're trying. It's just that it happens. As parents, you ju- it just happens. You, you can't help but grieve when your kids are grieving or to struggle when your kids are struggling. What the Pro- wisdom of the Proverbs said is that that's what a true friend does also. A true friend grieves when the other grieves and is joyful when the other is joyful. It's really about being aware of ourselves and reflecting that back onto others. So that's the carefulness. Third one, talked about constancy, carefulness, candor. Candor is an image of a scale. Candor is all about balance. Candor is probably the practice that we don't want to hear about because it makes us uncomfortable, because we like people to be happy with us, and candor asks us to balance truthfulness with that carefulness. Let's look at our passages from Proverbs. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Those who flatter their neighbors are spreading nets for their feet. Whoever rebukes a person will, in the end, gain favor rather than one who has a flattering tongue. You know, This is, you know, this is the idea that wounds from a friend are actually a good thing. That sounds like a bad thing, but what it's saying is that when we're honest with people, when we really take the time to give honest, caring, loving feedback, that it makes a difference in the lives of others, that we're actually called to do that for one another. I was just reading some business journals this week, and Candor actually came up again and again as one of the reasons that our organizations are failing. We've lost the art of being able to give and receive hard feedback. You know, there's this line that I think is interesting too. It says, those who flatter their neighbors are spreading nets for their feet. So, if we're not giving hard feedback, we're doing this. We're flattering our neighbors, and when we flatter our neighbors, it's like setting a bear trap that we know they're going to put their foot in. Flattery doesn't do anybody any good. In fact, if you have somebody that's flattering you all the time, they are not your friend. So that's kind of the comparison between these two. I think candor is hard to give, because I think we unintentionally end up beating somebody over the head with a two-by-four with our truth. Right, that's not being careful. So I think the best way to practice giving candor is by practicing receiving it. I had a spiritual formations practice that I had to complete, and I had to um, do a self-analysis of my ministry and get kind of my gifts and strengths, and then I had to get feedback from somebody on what they thought my strengths and weaknesses were. So I started with my husband, David, because I figured that was safe, because <laughs> I, I thought he was obligated to give me you know, gentle feedback, which he did, he gave me really good feedback. But then I had to pick three people that weren't family members and I picked Nick, Larry, and Paul, our our student's pastor. And it was horrifying thinking about showing up to meet with each of them individually. Because it's vulnerable, right? Like to receive feedback is really vulnerable. And honestly, I was afraid that I was going to show up and they were going to tell me that I am terrible at everything. Here's the gift of practicing receiving candor. They realized two things. The first was, those, those people were on my side. Their goal was to help me become the best that I can be. Their feedback wasn't there to, to hurt me or, or to make me worse. They were, it was like a team effort. They were there to cheer me on. In fact, they pointed out things in me that were positive that I hadn't, that I hadn't thought of. So there's a piece of candor that is really good because it gives us positive perspectives of ourselves that we wouldn't have if we didn't get feedback. Here's the other piece I realized. When it came to the hard feedback, It was a gift, and the gift was this. It was done with such compassion and love and care that it was easy to hear it, Uh, you know, it was hard, but it was good, it was a good process, but it also helped me think about ways that I can shift and change, and it helps me grow more fully into who God created me to be. That's this idea of candor, that's the give and the take that we want to do as good friends. So being a good friend, we need to be able to give candor, but my challenge to you is to take a time in the next couple weeks where you ask for some feedback from somebody. That will help us practice this characteristic even more more deeply. All right, fourth one, counsel. Let's look at our passages here because I wanna tell you where counsel comes in. It says, perfume and incense bring joy to the heart and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Counsel is the same as this phrase heartfelt advice. This isn't therapy. Okay, that's not what counsel means. It doesn't mean that we're showing up in friendship and, and, we're, and we're giving um, therapy session to somebody. This counsel is this back and forth um, trusting experience between two people. It's, it's very reciprocal. My friend Kristen is my, is my counsel person. She's the person that if I'm losing it because I'm having a rough day that I call and admit that I'm the worst mother of the year, again. I got the award again today. And here's what she does that's brilliant in that space. The first thing she does is that she empathizes. She hears me well. She catches my frustration. There's no judgment involved. The second thing she does is that she puts herself in my shoes and we talk about ways that she has felt like she's lost it as a mom. So we have this back and forth. The third thing she does, and sometimes I don't even know it's happening, is she brings in this this correction, this redirection, I I would say is a better word. It's that space where she says, hey, you know, if you try it this way, that may be a a good route to go. When she does that, the gift she's doing is she's keeping me from being destructive to myself and other people. But if she didn't take the time to do that, I would have missed an opportunity for my own growth. That's the idea of counsel, but it's a back and forth. Okay, it's not one friend doing that for another. That, that becomes that therapy we talked about. So, counsel is the back and forth. So, those are our, our four characteristics of friendship. All right, so we've talked a little bit about why we need friends. We talked about the characteristics of a good friend. Those, that's your head information. That's how to, how to step into this place of friendship. But I wanna come back to this idea of loneliness because that's the heart behind the friendship. And there's three truths I want to tell you about loneliness. The first is this, you are not alone in your loneliness. There is not one single person in this room, or on this planet, or in the history of human creation that has not experienced a deep loneliness. Remember that we were created for community, but fallenness the fallenness of creation has, has made this gap in us. That longing is there for a reason. You're not alone in your loneliness. But some of you are feeling this really deep, hurtful loneliness. It's so dark inside of you that when I talk about these characteristics of a good friend, you can't even imagine trying to give of yourself because you are so lonely. I want you to know that you are not alone, and that it's okay to feel lonely. It's normal to feel lonely. That level of loneliness has become a health risk in our, in our county, in our country, and we need to figure out what to do about that, but you're not alone in your loneliness. That's the first thing I want you to know because if you don't know that, what happens is, you know what loneliness does to us? It creates this, um, these messages that are untrue. You're alone. It's only you. You should be ashamed of yourself for being so lonely. Don't tell anyone at church. That just isn't true, okay? So you're not alone in your loneliness. Second thing. Loneliness is actually a warning light. Okay, God created us with a couple warning lights in our body. One is that when we're hungry, our stomachs growl. That tells us that we need to eat. Another is that if we touch a hot stove, we retract our hand. Okay, that's a warning sign because hot means pain, so we pull it away. Loneliness is a warning sign. It's it's a biological part of who we are. When we feel loneliness, it's triggering something inside of us to say, warning, warning, warning. Danger. Pain is a happening. So even though loneliness feels really badly, it's good that that warning system is there because it brings it to our awareness. Right? So that war- that's, it's a warning system. Okay? Third thing. To get out of the cycle of loneliness requires baby steps. If you're feeling lonely, the last thing you want to do is say anything to anybody or take a step towards community. It, it, it just is a stuck place. But if we don't take the risk, we're ignoring the warning sign. Okay, it's like you're having heart attack symptoms and you refuse to go to the doctor's office. You've got to take a baby step. I know it's hard. Back in 2000 was the loneliest period of my life. I had two little kids. I was suffering from postpartum depression. I had a job change. I was struggling in my marriage, and my circle of friends had this huge conflict and everybody disbanded. I was so lonely. I didn't want to come to church. I was embarrassed. I felt like I should be able to figure it out on my own. I figured if I wasn't here on Earth, it would be better for the people around me. It was dark. And one day I came to church, and I don't know what happened, but I had this little glimmer of bravery. And I said something that was just a nugget to Nick, actually. And he caught it, he heard it. He was in that place of carefulness where he saw the pain. And he gave me the chance to talk about it. And he reminded me that it was normal. He told me it was okay to be lonely. And then he gave me a gift he helped me connect with a small group. Now, I didn't want to be in a small group. <laughs> I was lonely. Like I sure didn't I didn't want to be around people. I wanted to cave. But man, that made a difference in my life. Those people became some of my best friends. And my loneliness didn't go away, but all of a sudden instead of being the sole string trying to carry all this weightiness that was happening in my life, I had multiple strings that were helping with that portion. If I can take the baby step, you can take the baby step too. I know it's hard but those warning signals are going off inside of you, and you've got, you've got to take a risk. One of our huge values here at Waterstone, we talk about this on our staff every week, is how can we make sure that you're all connected with somebody? Because we know. We hear stories of loneliness all the time. We know that it's an epidemic in our country. We have places for you to connect. We just need you to tell us where you're at so that we can help. So I want to challenge you That if you're in this place of that loneliness, to take a risk and say something to somebody. It can be a pastor. It can be somebody that you've seen that you think may be trustworthy. It can be one of our Stephen ministers. But please, please, don't leave church today without giving somebody a glimpse into the loneliness you're experiencing. All right. So friendship. We've got why to be friends. We've got the characteristics of a good friendship. We talked a bit about loneliness. There's one other thing I need to tell you. Friendships fill part of our loneliness, but it will never make it go away. In fact, that loneliness won't be completely gone until Jesus comes back again and fully restores us to himself. But in the meantime, we have a father who loves us so much that he recognized when he created us with, with the intent of community and then the fallen world happened because we pursued our own individualistic needs, he loves us so much that he was like the parent who said, you know what, I'm as happy as my unhappiest kid. I can't let this happen. I'm gonna do something about it and he came after us. He sent his son Jesus as fully God and fully man to come to earth as the king, establish his kingdom. But not only is the, he the king, he is our friend. And he says, no greater friend is this than he lays down the life for his friends. He wants this interpersonal relationship with us, and that sounds crazy sometimes because we can't see him, but that's the God that we serve. He's the one that is here to fill those gaps that no person can fill. So my question for you is this. Have you taken that step towards Jesus? If you've never invited him into a relationship, It's really easy. It's about admitting that we're fallen and broken people. It's about believing in the saving grace that he has to offer us, and it's about committing to following him the rest of our days. If that's you today, I want to encourage you that when we pray here in a few minutes, that that's your prayer. It's Just as simple as saying, God, I need you. There are a lot of us in this room who have been following Jesus for a long time, but we're like Solomon, and we are so after our own individualistic pursuits that we are toiling day in and day out trying to fill our lives with something else that's not God and we need him. So if that describes you, when we pray in a minute, I want you to take the time to really confess that to God and to admit our need for him and our need for each other. Please don't leave today without taking a little step towards community and a little step towards God. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you are a God who loves us so much that you pursue us endlessly, that you desire us to be in full relationship with you and with each other. And God, that you promise that you will chase after us until Christ comes again and restores us back to the way things were intended to be. God, I pray for those in this room who've never um, asked for a relationship with you. God, I just pray for that courage to just say, God, I need you. I'm a mess I don't want to live this individualistic life anymore. God, come into my life. God, for so many in this room who've been followers of you for a long time but are pursuing those endless, meaningless toils of life, those individualistic efforts, God, just on behalf of us say, forgive us. Forgive us for ignoring you so that we can go after the things that, that we desire. God, help us to find our way back into community. And God, for those who are so incredibly lonely here that it's painful and it's dark and they may be wondering whether this earth is the place that they should even be anymore, God, remind them that yes, that you love them and you care about them and that they don't need to be alone. God, I just pray for those individuals that they would take the one step towards bravery and asking for a place of community. God, we love you and are so thankful for Jesus and for his love and grace. In your name we pray.